You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing this week is Tim Burrows. Good day, good day. Brittany Rigby. Hello. For the last time, it Brittany is. Rigby, unfortunately. It is the last time, Damo. And Xander Wilson. Thanks for having me, Damo. Later in the Mumbrella Cast, I'll be talking to Andrew Jaspin, founder of The Conversation, about the 10th anniversary of the very unique publication. The discussion included how he started the conversation after being editor-in-chief of The Age and holding other high-profile editorial positions in the UK, as well as how he funded it, uh, expanding it overseas, and what he thinks about the news media bargaining code. But first, the week's topics. The culture of alcohol in Adland put under the microscope, and Wynn CEO is added to the board of nine. This week, Brit filed an in-depth feature which explored the culture of alcohol in Adland. The jumping-off point was the most recent mentally healthy study. More than 1,500 people from across the industry completed the survey, which revealed that over half of them displayed symptoms of depression or anxiety. It also revealed that almost half are drinking at risky levels, levels that have increased during COVID-19. Britt, somewhat alarming results. What did you discover in your research and interviews? Yeah, like, it was as you say, the jumping off point, because I think I'd been thinking about drinking in our industry and what I noticed going to events in this role for a long time before that. And then when that study hit and I saw the figures, I thought, okay, this isn't just my singular observations. There's something else here. And to be honest, I think at first I was perhaps naively surprised at the COVID results in particular. I thought, well, we're not going to work events. There's not the peer pressure. There's not the egging on. There's not the free booze. Surely that means that drinking levels would decrease when you're at home and you don't have that stuff. I know that drinking levels decreased for me, but during my chats with people, both the ones who were named and the ones who weren't, quite a few of them pointed out that actually if if you're in the industry and you're already uh, subject to that pressure for so long, your drinking habits build up and that just doesn't switch off when you go home and don't see people from from work for six months or 12 months, like that continues. And so one of the people quoted in the piece whose, whose name was changed said that, yeah, she's left the industry and, and her addiction meant that she left the industry because she felt like she actually couldn't recover from alcoholism and stay working in advertising, but that if she was working in the industry last year and she was still drinking really heavily, that would have been kind of the perfect storm for her because she wasn't worried about her bosses or colleagues seeing her drink. So yeah, it was it was an interesting point to jump off from and I think led to a lot of really helpful conversations or meaty conversations around like, you know, what, what we do and how we function kind of as a as an industry you mentioned that some people's names had been changed as well uh, how did you find approaching people in the industry with only one person if i was correct uh put their name to their quotes was there a lot of reticence to actually talk about it uh to you at all and could you do you think you could have found more people to put their name on on the record or was this still a really problematic thing to talk about in the industry? 
Yeah, so the two people who put their names to it was Alex Watts at DDB, who's their head of social, and I think he mentioned in his interview and part of it was mentioned in the piece that he's found it easier and easier the more senior he's gotten. And so I think that that helps in terms of him being able to speak and not have those same fears that others might. And then the other person who put their name to it was Pete Brennan, who founded Heaps Normal, the non-alcoholic beer company. And again, he's in a bit of a different position. He's a founder of his business and is perhaps, you know, not subject to the same scrutiny as as others would be. The two that didn't, that um, made it into the piece, I had kind of background chats with others. And you're right, it was it was hard to get people to feel comfortable talking, let alone talking with their name attached to it. One of whom was worried about it impacting her career and her uh, progression and what her colleagues and bosses might think of her if if they knew that that's what she thought. And then the other who left the industry because of her addiction and was worried that should she ever want to come back to the industry at some point, that people would think badly or poorly of her. Yeah. And out of all the people sitting around here on the podcast, Tim, you've got the most by far experience of working in other markets than Australia. What's your experience been comparing what uh, you saw in other markets and Australia now? I suppose one point to make is although, yeah, worked in the UK, worked in the Middle East, um, probably not enough experience of industry events in the Middle East to, 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 to give a real insight and got all sorts of different mixtures of expat culture versus elsewhere um but the uk yeah very much reminds me of australia i mean i i think our our culture our agency culture here there's a lot of crossover with the uk and it it yeah i guess there's so much to it because you know alcohol is so intrinsic to how the industry works you know so it's it it in some way it makes the culture so you know, there's that one element is is part of the currency. You know, it's been more than a year since I walked into a media agency boss's uh, office because we don't go into people's offices anymore. But um, you know, I, it's very rare to walk into an agency boss's office and there's not just tucked away somewhere a you can see that yellow box of verve that some media owner has sent to congratulate them on some milestone. And, you know, there's there's just like it becomes a unit of currency almost. You know, that idea that you you acknowledge milestones maybe these days the fashion has turned towards it seems to be almost what arrives now is um some sort of craft gin instead we seem to have moved on from verve but you know there's definitely that you know one one of the just sort of almost no no brainers to send a bit of a you know well done message to a valued client or whatever is the currency but then then obviously at industry events you know it's the is the catalyst it's the thing that gets conversations going that makes the party get started that puts everybody under pressure to have a good time uh and then of course for some people you know we're not we're not all extroverts in this industry but lots of us pretend to be and it can become a bit of a crutch for that as well you know it's 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 sometimes it's easier to you know even just to get through a boring awards night and intrinsically many awards nights are boring sometimes just the, the, the tool to get through that is 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 you know a couple of uh, a, a couple of beers or something at the start of the night. So there's there's so much to it, and it's so hard to uh, cut the ties on it um, because it's you know it, 
I think to, to Brit's point, there's so much hidden cost there, um, you know, to individuals. Um, but something I was saying to Brit after this, you know, we, we published it is, you know, I look back at all of the years that Mumbrella's run events and uh, I kind of feel that, you know, certainly for the years that I guess it was my responsibility as owner, we were lucky we've never had a major incident. Just when you have hour after hour of so many industry people drinking so long and so late, um, you know, any any agency, any media owner that chooses to run these events, you're playing a bit of a lottery because sooner or later you're going to have a problem. Just the law of averages says it. And I'm not sure any of us think hard enough about that. Yeah, that's a really good point. Do, do we think hard enough about this, Brit? Your piece dropped a few days ago now. Have you had any feedback from leaders within the industry about how they've digested the the feature piece that you wrote? Yeah, I have. I've been quite moved by the response, really. A lot of it has been people emailing, messaging to say, this is my experience in my agency or I go to Alcoholics Anonymous and my boss doesn't know or my colleagues don't know. There's been, you know, agency leaders saying, I've never thought of it in in this way you know thank you for writing it I think other people's responses has also made me think differently even about the stuff that I wrote and thought about uh, you know a few days ago and it's a piece that took a long time to come together but I was chatting to Tim afterwards that chat that Tim mentioned and one of the things that I said to Tim was it made me think about how I've felt in certain situations at industry events when the balance of power is is different for me, when you're going into a setting as a journalist, yes, I might be younger than a lot of the very senior, often male executives that you're dealing with, but there's still a level that they need something from me as much as I need something from them. I'm not working for them. I don't owe anything to them or their client. And through some of the chats I had, I thought much more about how much that must be amplified when these are people that you're working for and are paying your paychecks and are wheeling you out to clients and that has very obvious and direct business links and progression, you know, consequences for you. So I think it's it's certainly made me think more about it even what now that it's out, having those chats with people in the market and I hope that it's not a chat, you know, it's it's always hard with these things. Sometimes the chat flares up and and there's a, a moment in time where people care about it and then it dies back down and maybe something big happens or more stats come out or whatever it is and it starts back up again. But I hope at least that it's something that, you know, as Tim said, you at least ask the question like, have we thought enough about this? Are we thinking about it? Coming up next, a roundup of the week in TV news. This morning it was revealed that Wynn CEO Andrew Lancaster will be joining the board at Nine as non-executive director. It follows the two businesses reaching an affiliation deal two weeks ago, with the Wynn Network returning to Nine after a five-year relationship with Southern Cross Stereo. Tim, there were widespread rumours circulating about Bruce Gordon wanting a Nine board seat and potentially selling Wynn to Nine. Neither of those two scenarios have occurred yet, but where does today's announcement leave us? Look, I suppose it, it ticks one box in that direction. So to be 
Claire, the Gordon family, Bruce Gordon, owner of Wynn, um, started off in Wollongong, which is where the W comes from. Um, for most of its history, it's been an affiliate of the Nine Network. Uh, last five years or so, it's uh, it's it, it's it, it's uh, been united with Ten instead. But that's about as we've already um, been talking about. Is about to switch back to Nine again. Um, we also saw Bruce Gordon sell some of his shares in Prime, which is the Seven affiliate, to Anthony Catalano and the the, the sort of uh, syndicate that he works with, uh, who's clearly got his own thoughts around Prime. But the so there's a little bit of a signal from the fact that Bruce Gordon is willing to let go of some of his stake there, put more of his chips on the table with Nine instead. Seems to be some sort of signal. So of course, yeah, that's led to some speculation that maybe there would be some sort of takeover or merger. And that, you know, that's been legally possible for the last two or three years since the um, 75% reach rule was repealed, which said that any TV network could only reach 75% of the population. So that's gone now. So that that would make it more, you know, would, would, would make it practical to do it. And we, we nearly saw it happen a year and a bit back when... Um, Seven tried to do do that merger with Prime, so they they could have been the first network to do it, but that fell over partly because of Anthony Catalano and Bruce Gordon blocking it. Um, so you know we're yet to actually have a TV network with genuine metro and regional reach, you know, to be a truly national TV network. So there's a logic there. the The economic logic on why it's hard to figure out how it might happen is at the moment the way the affiliate deal works for nine is every dollar that of, of advertising revenue that Bruce Gordon's win rights nine gets fifty cents and there is there's there's you know there's there's no further cost in 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 doing that so to to come with a sort of structure of a deal that actually makes it attractive to nine's shareholders they'd probably have to get win at a relatively low price. And of course, Bruce Gordon will want a relatively high price. So whether they can meet somewhere, if not now, then in the future, um, certainly the fact that the affiliation's back in place and that um, uh, Andrew Lancaster is now Bruce Gordon's representative on the board, it, it creates a couple of the circumstances, but... If nothing happens for months or years, I also wouldn't be surprised. Well, that was going to be my next question was, does this now create the environment where nothing has to happen for months or years, really? Well, I kind of thought, oh, well, you know, we're, we're a few days away from uh, Hugh Mark's last day as CEO. It'd be nice for there to be one more big deal, but I don't think that's going to happen. He's had, obviously, a very good innings anyway, so it's not like they need another deal. So, so yeah, well, I'm, I, you're always wrong about these things, but... Um, yeah, I, I would be surprised if it happened quickly. Now, it was an important uh, week in TV and other areas as well, particularly in ratings. Xander, you've been covering off the linear TV ratings pretty closely the last few weeks. This week, we saw maths rolling on. We saw winter sports uh, starting up, the, the Tier 1 sports. And we also saw Nat Bar's first week at Sunrise. Give us a bit of a rundown of what results we saw. Yeah, so a pretty big week, pretty big last few weeks really for, for linear TV ratings. Um, talking about maths, um, it continues to just be an absolute juggernaut for Channel 9. Um, we've now had, as of today, uh, five episodes in a row, over one million Metro viewers tuning in. Um, but 
really what it's worth looking at is what that's going up against. Most nights at the moment, Seven is airing episodes of Border Security at, at 7.30pm weeknights against against Nine. And, and they started doing that when they moved Ultimate Tag, um, one of their new tentpole programs, to, to their multi-channel Seven flicks. Um, that program fell out of the Metro Top 20 in just its second episode. Holy Moly, the, the show they had on before that fared slightly better in its run, but was sort of bringing in five, 600,000 viewers on its best nights. Um, and then looking over at Channel 10, its latest effort, The Cube with Andy Lee, um, it's really sort of starting to tank, unfortunately, for them. It, it opened to almost 600,000 Metro viewers, but by last night was down to about 300 and almost out of the top 20. Um, I spoke with Steve Allen from from Pearman and and he said that seven slate of razzle dazzle, as he put it, programming really hasn't lived up to expectations so far this year. Um, but they did install Nat Bar as a replacement for Sunrise uh, for Sunrise's Sam Armitage last week. Um, but that's seen little change to the ratings, really. That show's still rating around 240, 250,000 Metro viewers and still outperforming today on the Nine Network. And as you mentioned there, we've seen some winter sports kick off recently. Uh, the NRL and AFL seasons have launched in the last couple of weeks. NRL kicked off to 463,000 Metro viewers um, and had about a head, a head start of, of a week over the AFL for nine. Um, but the AFL since really proved its continued pulling power over Australian audiences. Um, it debuted to 668,000 Metro viewers um, and... It really, it helped Seven uh, move up really about uh, just, just around 3% in the network share for the whole of last week, still sitting behind nine on, on 30, 30.4% for last week. It did deliver Seven uh, a, a rare win on the night that, that the AFL kicked off. Um, but yeah, it, it will be hard to see Seven catching nine for the rest of the year. And the one network that we didn't really talk about just then, 10, which has announced a new show this week to, to air after the amazing race. Britt, you covered that off. Uh, what do we know about that so far? Yeah, it's it's called What the Hell Just Happened? And it's in response to the year 2020. I I read the release and I kind of felt like we've already seen this, like, I know Netflix and Stan have both had shows directly in response to uh, 2020, or actually I think it might be Amazon Prime, not Stan, but point is a couple of the streamers have responded to, you know, the trash fire that was last year and have put a funny spin on it and have wheeled people out to chat about it. Yeah, there was that Charlie Brooker one on Netflix, wasn't there? Exactly. And so it feels like a similar concept maybe, you know, finds a slightly different audience on free-to-air. I don't know. Uh, Julie Bishop's one of the the people involved. I don't think that it's going to have a host. So it's narrated by Kate Landbrook, but it just says that 20 celebrities across however many episodes will, will feature the promo pick they sent through is Julie Bishop and Joel Creasy. So I'm guessing it's maybe a couple of celebs per night. Sounds like a great podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, look, I, I hope it does well for 10. I just think we're now, you know, in March, this won't be rolling out until April. Is it a little bit too late to jump on the how bad was last year bandwagon? I feel like that ship might have sailed, but who knows? Maybe they'll, maybe they'll find an audience that hasn't watched the, the streaming versions. Coming up next, my chat with the founder of The Conversation, Andrew Jasmine.
it's a pleasure to welcome to the Mumbrella cast Andrew Jaspin, founder of The Conversation, former editor-in-chief of The Age and Sunday Age, as well as The Big Issue in London, and also former editor of The Observer, The Scotsman, and a member of the Order of Australia, no less. Uh, welcome, Andrew. Did I get all of that right? Pretty well, but I think I would bore your readers if I if I added that uh, on top of all that, I was the editor of Scotland's top newspaper, The Scotsman, uh, its sister paper, The Scotland Sunday, and I also ran the Sunday Times Scotland, which was a Sunday Times edition. Um, and I used to work at the Times in London, the Sunday Times in London as well, and so it goes on and on. But anyway, you got most of it. Excellent. All hugely relevant. Uh, now, we're speaking with you on this episode of the Mumbrella cast, specifically because March 25 is the 10-year anniversary of The Conversation, a rather ambitious project which you founded. And, and to paraphrase the site, it's a, a collaboration between academics and journalists where everything you read is created by academics and journalists working together. And all the work is free to read and free to republish under Creative Commons so I'd love to kick off, I guess, with the obvious question. Did you expect the conversation to go so well for so long? Well, the short, short, short answer is no. And, you know, when you launch something, you, you really don't know. I mean, you know, there are, there are so many failures along the way that nobody ever talks about. Um, you know, we only seem to celebrate success, as it were. But I have to say, right at the beginning, um, there were a couple of things that indicated to me that we wouldn't just fizzle out overnight. Um, one of the most important bits, which isn't to do with the editorial side of things, is that I made it very, very clear I wanted to have three years funding secured before we launched. Um, that gave what I call a, um, a sort of a runway, as it were, to give us three years to just build on um, you know, how things went. And it also allows you to correct if you make any early mistakes. Um, so you know, when we launched the site, it was a beta site. And we took the word beta off after years because for the first year you make you make changes, you see what works and what doesn't work and so on and so forth. But getting three years was really important. And if I may, um, I'd like to explain how that came about. Mm -hmm. um, so the first thing is that um, I developed the idea for the vice chancellor of University of Melbourne, um, Glenn Davis, and he really liked it. And I said, look, we need to raise three million. And he said, well, look, um, I'm going to ring up some of the other vice chancellors, which he did. And before we knew it, we had five vice chancellors committing 200,000 apiece, um, which was very important because I was also talking to the Victorian government who said, we'll match anything you raise, but you must bring university partners in. So they then matched that. So suddenly we were, because um, all those vice chancellors committed for three years at 200,000. So that was a million a year for, for three years. Victorian government matched that. And then um, Julia Gillard at the time was the education secretary uh, in, in the Commonwealth, and she matched that as well. So we had 9 million. And then um, I managed to also secure the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, who contributed 850,000 a year just to develop the, pla uh, the platform. Um, they wanted to stay away from the editorial for obvious reasons, but they were happy to be our technical partner, as it were, or, or our technology partner, I should say. Um, so we had we had you know ten million dollars, sort of pretty well in the in in the bank from from the outset, and that security I think allowed us to uh, to experiment, to make mistakes along the way, to correct them, and to have a strong product. So at the end of that three years guaranteed funding. We, we were in pretty good shape. And I think, you know, if you're asked 
to ask me the question in shorthand, why did why why do you think it survived? I think we got the business model right, which I should add has no advertising at all. It was around a membership model. So it's not a model which everybody can go for, is pretty unique here. The universities actually bought into the whole idea and signed up on an annual membership fee, um, which still goes on um, with all 39 universities contributing. Now, I'm fascinated by the variety of areas you got funding from and how you actually thought that that strategy was going to work and create a long-term business model that, that would work, particularly because you're a journalist by trade. If we call a spade a spade, generally speaking, journalists don't necessarily make great business people and, and vice versa. How did you feel or know that you had the right strategy in place to make this work? By the way, I should mention to you that you and I both know Anthony Catalano, um, mm. who's done extremely well. He started his career doing police rounds. Mm. Um, you know, his background as a journalist. And look how successful he is. I mean, I'm not in his league by any means. Uh, look, but... I started in police rounds too, and I'm certainly not in that league either. <laughs> um, but the thing is that my, my view on all these things, and by the way, I've done a, a few of these startups. This is not the first I've, I've ever done. Is if you really firmly believe in an idea, you really believe in it, um, and you want to make it happen, you actually have to, you know, roll your sleeves up and do it. You, know, you can't just go to somebody and say, here's a great idea. Um, you know, why don't you fund it? Um, or, you know, why don't you start it? Um, I, I basically had to do that myself. And the power of having the, um, the, vi- the, the person with a vision fronting it up is that when you go to see government or universities or whatever, um, you can actually enunciate, you know, what the, what it is that you're trying to do and why you're doing it. And also, by the way, why you should have a good chance of making it succeed. Um, and I, I should mention that having been the editor of The Age, that did open doors to me. So I was in a privileged position. It's not as though I was just, you know, somebody in the street that walked up to government and said, you know, what about this idea? They, you know, they all knew me. I had a bit of a track record, which meant you know, that they answered my calls, they invited me into meetings and so on and so forth. Um, so I was in a privileged position, but articulating that vision in a way which actually makes sense and they could buy into was very important. And, you know, I, my, my view on all good ideas is whether or not they succeed is one is, is it actually a good idea or not? Two, um, have you got the right leadership to deliver on that idea? And three, do you have the funding um, you know, to make it happen, or are you undercapitalized? So if you're undercapitalized, you probably fall over. If you've got poor leadership, you'll fall over. And if the idea actually wasn't that good, you'll fall over. So I, I, I tend to think we got those three reasonably right. Um, but uh, I, I don't want to underestimate the importance of um, the support that we got um, and, and, how we, and how we got that. But you've got to have somebody who will really um, you know, argue the vision, as it were, or prosecute the vision. You uh, left the conversation in 2017. Can you tell me a bit more about what what made that decision and, and why you took that decision? There was a bit of publicity around it, but I guess we didn't really get to ask you that question very much when that happened. So probably a good opportunity now to, to ask you, uh, you know, what your perspective uh, was of the situation. Yeah. Um... 
I mean, it's it's kind of um, a lot of this stuff is uh, subject to confidential agreements I signed when when I left the conversation. So, you know, I don't want to stray too much into that area. But um, what I would say is this: that um, I I sort of developed the idea in at the very well, I started thinking about it at the very end of two thousand eight, which is after I left the age, um, and uh, I then developed it through. 2009 and then in 2010 secured that funding and then launched in 2011 so i've been kind of working on the idea from let's say 2009 till 2017 so you know that's that's quite a, a long period mm. as, as it were i'd i'd spent very long hours on the conversation and uh done a, done you know eight years of, of that in a sense and there was a combination of issues which, which came together. And I decided um, to um, take a break from the conversation, as it were, and, um, you know, do something else. Um, having said that, um, I wasn't happy um, to be leaving the conversation. And, you know, there were some issues, uh, particularly around, um, you know, a, a number of people there that, that I wasn't happy with. But um, I kind of felt maybe this was the time to, to move on and do something else. And, and frankly, you know, I then moved and joined RMIT and did you know, quite a lot of work there. And um, I've now joined Monash University. I'm doing a whole range of different things, you know, things which I've never done before. And I'm really delighted to have had those opportunities to spread my wings a little bit and think in different directions. So... Um, so that's that's kind of um, that's kind of why it all happened. Um, but uh, it's not as though I was there for you know a year or two years and it didn't work out. You know, I was there for a long time. And don't forget, I was both the editor of the Australian site. I was editor in chief, as it were, of the other sites because you know I kept an eye on them. I was also the I didn't call myself the CEO. I called myself the executive director, uh, which meant ran the business. And also, I was the chief fundraiser. Um, and sort of proselytizer, as it were, in terms of, you know, doing media interviews, much as we're doing now, um, just, you know, to talk up the conversation. So it, it, it was, um, it all that takes its toll, but, but also, you know, I, I have a family and, um, you know, I, I, I know it's a little bit of a cliche, but, you know, uh, stepping away meant I could spend a little bit more time with my family. Andrew, you make a very good point. You spent many, many years on the conversation and a large part of what it is today has your signature uh, all over it. Tell me, how do you assess how it's continued to travel to, to this day? Uh, would you have done anything different? Do you look at it and go, that's exactly how I imagined it? Mm. What's your perception of the conversation today? Well, look, there are three critical issues which um, sort of underpinned my thinking about launching the conversation. The first one was that I was really worried about the fact that uh, uh, during my almost five years at the age, I'd seen every year redundancy round. And because it had to be voluntary, because it was all done through the union, and the union would only agree to it if it was voluntary, what happened is, is some of the, the best people who knew that they could walk out, take a package and move into another job and just bank the money went and I honestly it was very painful to see that quality of of resource in terms of staffing just walking out and and I could see every time there's another redundancy round that it was weakening 
our offering. Um, so the first thing I wanted to do was when I left was to say, well, how can we uh, bring back specialist uh, information with deep expertise? So that was one of the key drivers of the conversation. The second one is, um, and although the term fake news wasn't used widely then, there was still a lot of concern about the quality of information. You know, could we still rely upon it or not? And my view is that um, information and journalism is a subset of information is absolutely critical to a functioning democracy to have high quality information that you can that is reliable. I, I like to use the word reliable rather than trusted because reliable requires um, a set of measures against you know whether or not you know we, we we can consume it safely so for example if you think of clean water you know uh, that water is tested and only once it's passed a certain test does it flow through your tap and you can drink it in the same way my view is for to have clean information you need to put in place a whole bunch of tests which will then allow the end user to think this is clean reliable it's been checked and i want to use it so we put a very high emphasis on that. And the third point is I could see in Australia, there was, you probably don't remember this term, but there was there was a term that was used all the time, just saying, oh, it's the usual voices. You know, all we have is there's kind of like three or four people who talk about any subject because they're about the only three or four people who understood anything. And the beauty of the conversation, if you just take Australia, is there are 100,000 academics in Australia and 20% of them or 20,000 have contributed to the conversation. So you've actually introduced 20,000 new voices to Australia. And to me, um, having a diversity of views and information and voices is absolutely critical as well to a well-functioning democracy. So it wasn't just coming from the usual people. And as a result of the conversation, you probably noticed that many more of the academics who've written for us have then been invited to go on to you know, TV and radio and another outlet as well. So in many ways, I think the, the project has actually enriched Australian, um, both uh, the ecosystem of information, but also enriched and allowed a better functioning democracy with, with better information, checked information from a variety of different points of view. Obviously, we've been covering the the news media bargaining code uh, substantially, uh, and also the state of journalism in Australia, which you've uh, you know made some very interesting comments about previously, whether it relates to to Fairfax, your previous employer, or just journalism in general. I'd love to get your thoughts on where we sit at the moment, journalism in our nation, particularly with the news media bargaining code. And I guess the connection here being that the conversation was one of the, the first to sign up to, to Google News Showcase. Uh, some may say that was a too early a move. Others say, no, they had to do it when they did it. But how do you assess journalism in Australia at the moment in light of the situation we find ourselves in right now? So the first thing I should just quickly say, Damon, is, is I'm not at the conversation anymore. So I'm not privy to why they took that deal. And uh, what I do know is there are certain people out there very critical that they took it because it undermines others. And others would say, well, no, it was a very good deal because, you know, they got in quick and, and secured some money. But more generally, let me put it like this. If you go back about 10 years, there was the equivalent of about nine or 10 billion a year spent on um the media. That's kind of before really Google and Facebook um, 
had had moved into its sort of area of uh, dominance of the market. So what ha what's happened now is it's a very simple graph, which I always like to show. About 60% of that 10 billion now flows to Facebook and Google, primarily Google, I should say. Um, and what they do is that they bill for all the, the advertising offshore, either in Singapore or Ireland or elsewhere. So what that means is when they actually look at the turnover of Facebook and Google, who, by the way, got offices here in Australia, but the turnover of the Australian operation is minimal and they get taxed on that. And the contribution that they make is, is, is a, just a tax against that very small turnover here. The real money is all goes offshore. Now, to me, um, Google and Facebook carry content, and I don't actually have a problem with them using the content or linking to it. But the, the real question is, who is going to pay for the creation of the content, not the distribution? It's easy to distribute, particularly with the algorithms that they've got. I mean, it doesn't take human beings to make decisions about whether to run something or not. You know, the question is, though, who is actually going to create the content and curate the content? Because my view is curation is really important if you want to, to move towards a system, which, is, which I think will be introduced at some stage, which will give you a kind of a badge as to whether this information is reliable or not. And there's, there's lots of work going on in that direction. But, you know, that can't just be an algorithm. You know, that, that requires a whole series of tests as sort of um, there's something called the Trust Project in the US and a number of other things which have sort of a, a 10 point test on information before they give it a badge, uh, a gold star or whatever. So what's happened is it's it's drained the, the pool for of advertising um, for the media to spend on journalists and editors and photographers and, and so on and so forth to actually create content. So you've taken a huge amount out. So that's the problem. And the question is, how do you fix it? And my view is the approach I would do is not the one that the government have gone for. Um, and largely, my view is this, this government has, in a sense, had its, um, had its agenda set by News Corp, which is kind of the biggest player mm -hmm. in Australia. Um, my view would have been to take a, a different approach, which is to say to Google and Facebook, look, um, you can continue doing what you're doing. And, and in many ways, what they do is, is actually drive traffic back and give you a bigger audience and all that kind of stuff. But my view is, look, you're taking uh, $6 billion a year out of Australia. Um, you're not paying tax, and you should be paying tax in this country because the people advertising are, are based in this country. Uh, the other media competing with you have to pay tax as well, um, some more or less, but, but you know they do pay more of a contribution. And if you want to play in Australia, there's, there's kind of some, some basic rules which you must comply with, and you're not. So my solution, which I put forward to the ACCC, I was actually invited to put this forward, um, was to say to them, look, you can continue doing what you will, but we will put a, a levy, and I suggested a levy of 10 or 20% on total turnover. Um, so of that 6 billion a year, at least 600 million, 10%, would go into a fund which would be utilized to fundamentally correct some market failures. And the big market failures, I should say, and we've, we've talked about one of them, which is the lack of specialist reporters, you know, as in science editors, health editors, environment editors. But the other area is regional community journalism. So a lot of those, as you know, are really stressed. Then there's the other area, which is terribly important, which is coverage of um, police rounds, 
courts, the legal system, all that kind of stuff, which again is, it just means lots of town halls and lots of courts, et cetera, have gone dark. You know, nobody is actually uh, any longer performing the role of the fourth estate, which is to report on these uh, institutions and also to uh, hold them up to scrutiny as well. So those were the kind of areas which I was going to suggest that they put that money towards. Um, and um, and given that these the Google and Facebook seem to be you know increasing their revenues every year, that fund would actually go up and there'd be a good stream of money going back in, and that would enrich Australia with with um, with you know better and broader coverage. Um, so that's the kind of approach which which I would have preferred. But what Google and Facebook have done is they seem to have gone around trying to buy off opposition, and my fear is that when any of these news outlets take the the shilling um you know from google and facebook you're compromised because you're actually they're they're a funder and you're compromised in so far as um even though you might give assurances that this won't affect your editorial integrity and independence um you are aware that you know this is funding certain bits of your operation and if you're too critical of facebook and google you know this could jeopardize that funding. So um, I'm not really comfortable with that approach of buying off people. And as you probably know, certain certain players have said, no, they don't want to take the money. Uh, others didn't have a choice. They just really needed the money. The Guardian have argued, because I've seen their case, which is that they will have more resources to do their job better. That's, that's their kind of claim. And I don't doubt that'll be the case. But once you do take their money, you know, you, you, there is a kind of different relationship uh, there. So I don't think that's necessarily healthy. And I would have preferred more of a hands-off or an arm's length approach whereby that money came from Google, went into independent fund for journalism, and then was distributed along the lines I suggested. It's interesting, isn't it? I think the biggest question out of all of that would probably be what does resource mean? Does it mean more journalists or does it mean something different? And that's uh, something that we're trying to get to the, the bottom of as well. What you don't particularly want to do is, is have that money go into the back office and it then just you know helps pay for bonuses or for you know extra profits or whatever it should be predicated to actually saying what is the what is the problem we're trying to address here's some money to address that problem not not something else you mentioned uh, you know, obviously you're not uh, working at the conversation anymore but you also mentioned you know, the specializations that we really need to try and boost in journalism and community media was something you mentioned there as well. And there's a lot of specialization that needs to be put into there. Now, a few of those uh, groups uh, did join up with Google News Showcase quite early on in the piece. Personally, uh, for you, do you think we have seen uh, some of those businesses jump too quickly to do deals with, with Google or were, did they make the right call? I'm not really sure, Damien, is the short answer. Um, and the reason is that um, these are fabulously, I mean, there's never been companies like Facebook or Google before. Um, they have such deep pockets. Um, and their real concern was that if they got it wrong in Australia, so if things went against them, that that would then play out in all the other markets that they operate in. So the rest of the world is watching very closely what's going on here. And, you know, in certain cases, you've got people taking the money. So you, you would kind of say, well, good on you. You've got the money. And then but you could also say, well, shame on you because you've actually just, uh, in a sense, bought bought into their argument and you've kind of silenced the, the issue. 
which means that um, Google and Facebook can just confidently carry on as they are doing in the rest of the world. But many people are watching, and I, I hope we get it right here. Uh, quite frankly, I'm not sure whether we've got it right or not. And I've indicated to you, I think there was a different approach, but it's not one that this government um, or the, the 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 folks at News Corp, you know, would have probably bought into. Because I think what's what we've got now is essentially what News Corp have been demanding for the last 20 years, which is that Google, uh, particularly Google, start paying for their content. Now, Andrew, you've written a, a complimentary piece to this interview, which will be on Mumbrella now. So please do jump on the website and read that uh, article as well. It, uh, it, it ties in very well with the conversation we've just had. Andrew, thank you for joining the Mumbrella cast. Thank you for founding the conversation. It's still an extra, extremely valuable uh, source of information for, for everyone, not just in media, but outside of it as well. And I really appreciate the time that you've taken to have that conversation with us today. My pleasure, Damon. And that's it for this week. But before we go, Mumbrella 360 is back face-to-face this July to be run across three different venues in Sydney CBD. When purchasing your ticket, simply pick the venue you'd like to attend in person and you'll also unlock all virtual sessions from the other venues, plus the masterclasses on demand. Whether you're a brand, agency or media side, this is an event not to be missed. Book your early bird tickets now and save $300 via mumbrella.com.au forward slash mumbrella360. That's it for this week, though. Thank you, everyone, for joining me, particularly Brittany. Good luck in your future. Thank you for being on all these Mumbrella Casts. Thanks, Demo.